Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Good morning online. Glad that you're able to worship with us today. Uh, if you have a Bible, would you open to Hebrews chapter 9? And we're going to continue that series. And one of the great advantages of doing a book series is that often books will continually repeat their themes and it drives it deeper and deeper into our lives. Week to week then, we also have the opportunity of saying this week we're gonna stay with the main flow of the text and this week we're gonna actually uh, lean into this part a little bit more. So last week we were with the, more or less the main flow of the text. This week is gonna continue that. Next week's gonna continue that as well. And so this week we're gonna, we're gonna make sure we understand what he's saying and then we're gonna lean into some of the implications that we're gonna find at the end of the text. So um, we'll, we'll look forward to that in just a second. This week I had an interesting experience. Um, Davette and I work out um, at a, a local hit gym and I broke the gym while I was there. Um, we, it was, if you've ever worked out at a hit gym, you know it's different kinds of, um, well, just different activities. And this particular day was boxing day, so we had the big heavy bag that we're hitting. And he says, you know, the first cycle through, just kinda go moderate. And then the next cycle through, then go after it. And so the next cycle through, I went after it and we just barely started and my bag broke, right? It's held up above by two D-rings and one of them snapped and was all twisted up and my bag was all hanging cockeyed. And, and so I went to the, the guy and I, I said, what do I do? He said, uh... Why don't you trade places with them? They don't hit as hard. And uh, I have to, I'm not gonna lie, that felt pretty cool at that moment, right? And I, I, I have to admit that as I was then boxing at the next bag, I had that scene out of the Avengers in my mind. You know, when Captain America is working out and he keeps, keeps breaking the bags and has to set them aside because he's punching too hard. And I'm like, yeah, I'm Captain America. Yeah. The problem is, the problem is gyms have mirrors everywhere and if you're hitting a, a bag, every once in a while it'll move out of your line of sight and I look and I don't see Captain America at all. I see major disappointment. I see general fading away, but I don't see Captain America. And for all my teasing, I, I have no illusions, right? I, I'm not gonna impress anyone. I'm not gonna win any awards. <laughs> I'm just trying to make it out okay. And uh, there's actually a very focused purpose why we do what we do. And um, it's, uh, we have one daughter who's married, another who's about to get married, and grandbabies are gonna come, right? Now, they both tell me I have no say in that. I don't know why they say that. But I, I know they both, and, and the guys, they, they love kids, so the expectation is at some point they'll be grandbabies. And you wanna know why we work out like we do? It's because we have decided we wanna be the grandparents who can get down on the floor with the grandkids, right? And wait for it, this is the impressive part. And get back up, <laughs> right? That's why we do what we do. It's not, there's nothing impressive about it, it's just mere survival. We wanna be able to get down with the grandkids when they come and then get back up. And it's just a very practical thing. I have found that life goes in one direction and there is no pause button, there's no rewind. And so wisdom, hopefully, is learning to not only live in this moment well, but be ready for what's coming next. Which is why I brush my teeth more than once a day, right? And even use that little water flossy thing every once in a while, whatever that's called. I think that's the technical title, water flossy thing. That's why we change the oil in our car. That's why we 
contribute to a retirement fund. It's like, because this moment is quickly passing away. There's no pause. There's no rewind. And if I'm gonna do this moment well, I also need to have the next moment in mind and be looking just a little further down the road. Right, we were listening to a health podcast recently and it was interesting, the, the guy who was having the podcast had on there a, a marathon, not a marathoner, uh, an Ironman, uh, a, a, a world competitive Ironman um, athlete, right, triathlete. So that's a marathon and a 100 and whatever, 10 mile bike ride and a mile and a half, two miles. So you can tell I know it really well from all the times that I did. I don't remember the numbers, but it's a lot. It's really, really big and really, really hard. And this guy was world-class, literally. He was competitive, he was ranked, he was all of these things. He's about 70 now, so he's not doing that anymore. And he was on there giving health tips and all this kind of stuff. And one of the things that he said that as he was talking was uh, when you get past about 45, the most important focus for your life is your health. And the podcaster, the host, was like, oh, mm, yeah, yeah, that sounds right, right? And it, it's like it was gospel truth. But it's not. Gospel truth is gospel truth. That other stuff isn't. And I was, I was thinking about that, thinking about how easy it is for us to uh, get pulled off of gospel truth. The, the children, we know, we would articulate what they articulate. Jesus is the most important. But our lives don't always reflect that, right? For some of us, it actually is health that takes on the biggest thing. And whether you're young and just trying to have that profile or whatever, or whether you're old and you're just trying to stay away from the doctor as much as you can, and, and, and life is just about health. Or for some of us, the most important thing is family, right? It's about my relationship with my spouse, or my relationship with my, with my children. It's like, that's not the most important thing in life. Some of us make it about our careers, our success, our education. That's not the most important thing in life. Some of us make it about financial security or pleasure. We can make it about all kinds of things. We can make it about video games, our sex life, all kinds of stuff we fill in the blank with that we would not articulate that being the most important thing. But if you look at our finances, you look at our calendar, you look at our thought life, you look at the things that we strive for, dream about, pursue, there's something that's really, really important that kind of takes on this larger than life component. For this guy on the podcast, it was if you're over 45, it needs to be your health. Well, as important as health is, that's not the, that's not the answer. My finances aren't the answer, my family's not the answer, my children aren't the answer, my career is not the answer. Gospel truth is about the gospel itself. The most important thing that drives our lives is Jesus and our relationship with him and what that looks like. The book of Hebrews has been talking to people who are, are struggling. They're struggling because life's gotten hard. They're followers of Christ, and, and some of them are probably trying to figure out if they're gonna really follow Christ or not. And things are getting tough, and they're tempted to pull back. And so he's been, he's been showing them in, in comparison after comparison, how you really need to be in all, all in with Jesus because he is the answer. He's the best. He's the greatest. He's the most important. He's the most significant. He's better than is the, is the structure he uses. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the priests. And he brings a better covenant. That's the section we're in now. 
He's bringing a better covenant than the old one. The old one was from God. It was a good thing, but it was not sufficient. It was sufficient for God's purposes, but it's not sufficient for our needs. God wanted it to be, if you will, a bridge until Jesus was able to complete the work and to be a spotlight to show us that there's no way this is gonna work. We can't live up to this. And Jesus has now brought a better covenant, the one that's written on our hearts, the one that opens intimate access to the Father, the one that changes everything about us. Right, it's a better covenant in at least two key ways that are highlighted. One is, it is about the ultimate, about the permanent, about the real, not about the shadows, about the temporary, about the, the picture, the, the signpost. Right, the old covenant pointed to things. And it was this shadowy um, preview. But it didn't get to where we needed to be. The new covenant is the real deal. It's based in ultimate reality. It's based in heavenly realities, not passing earthly ones. And then the other key thing that's highlighted is that the old covenant had this cycle, repeat, 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 because it was insufficient, right? It had to continually be renewed. And the new covenant is anchored by a once-for-all reality that Jesus has brought. Last week showed us that. This week is gonna continue that. Next section is gonna continue that. So I wanna walk through this passage, make sure we're understanding the passage itself, and then focus our primary attention for what we take away today near the end. So if you have your Bible open, let's just walk down through this passage. And before we do, let me just tell you one thing that will be helpful. There is a Greek word that would have been Greek to them, right? They, they spoke Greek, so it was easy for them to track with, that translates with two different English words, both of which are in view here, but it gets confusing because we don't think of covenants and wills um, as, as the same basic territory. For them, it was an easy connection. It's the same word behind it. The word that's translated will is this word. The word that's translated covenant is this, is this word. So as they're reading it, the argument doesn't get muddy. It doesn't get confusing. It's really crystal clear. He's bringing in all of this reality, talking about wills and covenants and this thing that God has done through Jesus is one big package. So if we try to read it with too much precision based on our English words, it gets confusing. Just keep the bigger picture in mind and you'll be able to track with it just fine. So let's pick up the flow in verse 15. It says, therefore he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established, for will takes effect only at death, since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he looked, I'm sorry, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, those are things from the dedication ceremony, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, purifying not just um, the, the instruments of worship, but the people themselves, right? Saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Let's stop there for just a second. So he's got this, this idea that God has done something in Jesus that has been inaugurated by blood. 
Um, you can think of it in terms of will. You can think of it in terms of a covenant. They're both legitimate. A will, you don't get the benefits until the person dies, right? Yeah, I can write a will. I've got a will, but my children don't get their inheritance until I'm gone because it's the way wills work. And so it is. Some of the things that God has promised us, if you will, no pun intended, um, it's like a will, right? There, there was a death, but that death of Jesus has now freed these blessings to come, right? The covenant, this relationship, this contract relationship with God that he has initiated is, is set in place through a blood sacrifice. That's the way it worked with the old covenant and things were purified and the, the whole relationship was inaugurated through this blood, and, and the new covenant too, right? So his point is, look, Jesus has fulfilled those things and he's fulfilled them ultimately because it's his own blood and it's one single ultimate sacrifice. So now you and I get to enjoy all of the blessings that are promised, all of the, if you will, the will, the, the, the inheritance that comes, and we get the blessings of this relationship that's been inaugurated with God that now looks differently, even though it's rooted in the realities of the old covenant, it's, it's in totally new and, and, and much more complete and perfect connection point with God, right? Because we know him personally and we have intimate access and we have an advocate with the father and it's not somebody who goes in and out, but only once a year and then they have to start all over again next year. It's somebody who's gone in permanently. It's a done deal. Okay, let's keep following the flow here. Verse 21, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. In other words, if Jesus was doing the same thing as the, the high, high priest was doing, he'd have to die and rise and do it all over again the next year. And the next year after that, and the next year after that, and the next year after that. But it's not the same thing. He did it once for all. Not like the high priest who had to keep repeating it because the, 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 the sacrifice itself was actually sufficient. It wasn't simply a symbol. It wasn't simply uh, an enacted uh, expression of faith. It was, the, it was the, the effective work of God that changed everything. And so, verse 25, he, he, he wasn't to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places. He would have had to, verse 26, do this over and over again since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Okay, so he's continuing the flow. Jesus 
is better than Moses, Jesus is better than the angels, Jesus is better than the priests. He brings this better covenant that is permanent, that changes everything. We can see that. He's proving that in a number of different ways. The reality that comes into effect because he has offered himself, there has been the requisite death, the requisite sacrifice, but it's not just any death, it's not just any sacrifice. It's the eternal son of God who has willingly laid down his life so that there's this permanent change. Now that's part of the flow of what he's wanting to remind his audience of to say, now don't back, don't back down, don't back away just because it's gotten hard. Don't grow weak in the knees, keep trusting Christ. But as he does that, towards the end, he says a number of things that I think are worth spending a little bit more time on and the implications of them. So let's reread a few verses here and ask a couple of uh, critical questions that will help us to uh, take this, this text personally and, and, and have it be fruitful in our lives. So let's read the last few verses again. In verse 26, um, it says, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Let the immensity of what he's just said there and the finality of it sink in. Right? These, there's a lot of statements that are stacked up saying this is it. He has appeared once for all. This is the only thing. It is the final thing. There's nothing else to come. Nothing else is needed. This is it. This is the once for all work of God and it's come through Jesus. He's come at the end of the ages. It has literally changed the nature of the world in which we live. It has changed the cosmic age. Everything is now divided into before and after. On this moment that Jesus has lived and died and resurrected and what he accomplished there, everything splits. God has been at work, there have been things going on, and now the entire, the entire nature of reality has shifted. It is no longer the age where we are under the power of sin and death and Satan. Those have been conquered. And while the presence of sin and death and Satan are still something to be dealt with, it is dealt with, it's fundamentally different. This is the age of the church. This is the age of the kingdom of God. This is the age of the spirit. This is the age of the new covenant. Everything has shifted. You are now new creation, right? There's this reality that said this happened at the end of the ages and now a new age has dawned. That's a pretty significant shift. And this has happened to put away sin, right? Not to cover it temporarily, not to manage it, but to conquer it, to deal with it, to put it away, to resolve the problem. And then he does this by the sacrifice of himself. So it's not the same kind of sacrifice as before. It's not a, a goat, it's not a bull, it's not a ram, it's not a lamb. It's the eternal God-man. It's not a, 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 an animal that is innocent and in a sense a victim. It is the God-man who is not just innocent, but he's perfect, he's holy, and who willingly lays down his life. He's not a victim. He's not forced to... He chooses to. Oh, this, this section here says this is really, really significant. He's been arguing for how much better Jesus is, but right here he boils down to this is, this is, this is profound. 
We could spend a ton of time just wrestling with the implications of this, and it would be really deeply transformative. But he doesn't stop there. Then he talks more about our state and how Jesus addresses that, right? Goes on, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. There's a reality that we don't have a pause button, we don't get a do-over, life's going in one direction only, and we'd better be ready for what comes next because when death comes, that's it. There's judgment. No more chance, no more changes, no mulligans, no do-overs. It's just suddenly I am left with the consequences of my life. And God is the one who's gonna judge that. But that's exactly what Jesus is addressing. So Christ, having been offered once, right? He only dies once as well, to bear the sins of many. His death, instead of bringing judgment, brings life. He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. When he comes back, he's not gonna deal with sin. Sin's done, that's a, that's a dead issue. Right now, the, the, the practical living aspect of how, whether I'm walking in sin or holiness, that's a, that's a live and, and challenging issue. But the ultimate reality and what sin means, that's a dead issue. Jesus has conquered, he has resolved, he has dealt with. So the only issue that each of us has to address is where am I with respect to Jesus? Right, there's nothing more to be done. I'll save that. He's gonna appear a second time not to deal with sin, but instead to bring salvation. When he comes back, it's with a different focus. Judgment is implicit, right? With death or with the return of Christ, whichever comes first, there's judgment. But for those who are eager for his return, there's this salvation that's been promised. So as we, as we, as we look at that densely packed little section of scripture, it says a lot. And the implications of that really boil down to there's an urgency and a finality that we need to own about the gospel, right? And, and at a practical level, this passage causes me to ask two questions of myself and of us. And the two questions are really simple. What am I gonna do with this moment? And what am I gonna do with this message? Right, this moment is the only moment I have. There is an appointed time for me to die. And elsewhere in scripture, Psalm 139, for instance, says God has that marked out very precisely. I have no control over that. And I don't know when it's gonna happen. There is a, an appointment on my daytimer that's written in visible ink that only God can see. I don't know when that is. The only thing standing between me and that ultimate judgment is that appointment. And I don't know if that appointment comes in an hour, a week, a month. I don't even know if I'll, I'll live through this sermon. Some of you are sitting there going, we don't know if we're gonna live through this sermon either. <laughs> right, I, I understand. Right, we just, there's a lot of uncertainty, I don't know. The only moment I actually have is this one. At any moment, that appointment comes due, that's in God's hands. And that appointment brings death, and with that death then immediately comes judgment. Where do I stand with Christ is going to be the question. It's the only question, it's a pass or fail, 100% or zero test. One question, no curve, 
right? There's, a, there's an urgency that this passage brings that says one of the key questions I have to ask is what am I gonna do with this moment because it's the only one that I've got? And then the other question is what am I gonna do with this message? Because this is the only message of hope, right? Jesus is better is the theme that's been going on and on. But look in verse, uh, just real practically in verse 22, he makes this almost feels like a toss-off statement or a concluding statement, but it's really significant. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Everyone's standing before God. Everyone's standing before God rides on that reality. In other words, it doesn't matter how much good I do. It doesn't matter how religious I am, how prayerful I am. I know of no other religious or philosophical system where, the, where it centers on a savior who actually shed blood for me. This says that it is, is based on the shedding of blood that, that forgiveness is offered. Somebody's gotta die. There's no sin that ever is committed that doesn't bring death. There's no infraction, no failing that has any moral culpability to it that doesn't require death. Every single sin that I commit costs blood. It costs life. God doesn't overlook it. He doesn't bypass it. He's absolutely just. So, the only answer is the shedding of blood. And we saw in the Old, Old Testament system, the Old Covenant system, that was just a picture kind of a, a bridge and, and a signpost pointing forward because that blood actually didn't fully accomplish what was needed. It was an expression of faith, which God then recognized. But Jesus had to shed his blood to actually once for all deal with the reality of sin. Blood has been shed, right? So the message of Jesus is the only source of hope. There's no other message where blood has been shed. It's not about religious practices. It's not about good behavior. It's not about a moral fiber. It's not about, yeah, I can't save myself because I, it, well, I could shed my own blood, but that doesn't do me any good, does it? I could pay for my sins, but there's no life after that. The message of Jesus is the only hope. That's really important to remember because there's a lot of, a lot of tussling in the world today about messages, about agendas, about what's important and what's not. There's, this is important socially and this isn't. This is important in education and this isn't. This is important politically and this isn't. This is a moral message we need. There's all kinds of arguing and fussing and, and, and disagreement and, and sometimes it gets pretty rancorous. And we engage in that. And we need to engage in some of that. How we engage is an important question, but we must engage. We have truth and we need to speak truth. But the reality is, and this is so critical, it is only the gospel message that actually brings lasting change. All of those other messages are so secondary to the reality that the, the eternal son of God entered the world and he died on our behalf. He shed his blood to deal with sin and it is now forever dealt with, which is the fundamental issue we have. And it is the only answer, and the, it's done. It's done. 
There's nothing more to do. The only question for me is, how do I respond to that? Because when Jesus comes back, he's not coming back to do more things with sin. It's about judgment and reward at that moment. It's about fulfilling the promises and the delight that comes for those who are in relationship. And it's about the sorrow and tragedy of being shut out by my own sinful choices from that relationship with God that was offered to me. Right? That message, that message is the most important thing. Some of us here are stewards of that message. We've received it. And now God has given it to us, entrusted it to us and said, here's the hope. Here's the hope of the world. That's, that's the stewardship. Because not only is it true that there's an appointment for me where I will die and then comes judgment, that's true for you and everybody else. And while I myself have received the grace of God, there are people in my family who haven't. There are people on my street who haven't. There are people... I would say at my workplace, but as far as I know, everyone at my workplace has. <laughs> they shouldn't be working here if they haven't. There are people at your workplace that haven't. It's people that go to the games and sell you the things that the we're surrounded by people who are just like us, except they haven't received the message of hope. It's entrusted to us. The question that we have to wrestle with if all of this grand theology is true, and it is, this is absolutely transformative. The age has shifted because of what Jesus has done. If all of that's true, at a very practical level in this moment, the two questions I need to be answering is, what am I doing with this moment? Because it's the only one I have. And what am I doing with this message? Because it's been entrusted to me. I've actually asked Peter Brown to come and share a bit of a testimony story that he shared um, with me a little while back that I thought, that's really helpful. Hopefully it'll be encouraging. I walked up on the platform and closed my eyes and stood in silence before a public school band room of about a hundred middle schoolers. I tried to listen to the Lord and again came to the conclusion, it's time. I'm really excited to share a story with you that took place about a month and a half ago at my workplace, but let me first give you some background. My first job out of college was certainly not what I expected. I started working as an after-school program leader, and then not long after that as a substitute teacher at a local public middle school. And even though this is not the path I'd been training for and assumed would be next, it's very clear that God led me there and that God has been at work there. Because the good news is when we're God's kids, God goes with us wherever we go and wants to bless us and use us as a blessing. If only we'll walk prayerfully, seek his kingdom and be willing to take some risks. So at my public middle school, through a lot of prayer, um, both myself, other people going back at least 15 years have been praying over this school. And the willingness to take some risks, 
God has opened so many doors for the gospel. It's incredible. If you wanna hear, hear some more, ask me after. But I will focus on perhaps the biggest door God has opened or the widest door God's opened at my school is through a Christian club that I get to teach every Thursday during lunch. Thursdays, I come as a guest, I don't sub. And my job is to teach a Christian club in this band room that a Christian teacher opens to us. And I get to preach straight out of the word and share the gospel and freely speak whatever I want to the students that choose to come. And God has been richly blessing this club. The beginning of the year, we probably started with um, maybe around 30, 40 uh, kids average. Recently, we've been averaging around 80 kids, sometimes having to turn people away because um, there's too many. And about a little over a month ago, there was one really special day where God brought 100 kids to Christian Club, just packed in, and I stood up, decided to listen to the Lord. What should I say? What, what do you, how do you want to guide me? And I heard the Lord say, I think, or at least I came again to what the Lord had said earlier. It's time. But let me give you some background more on that phrase first. About two months ago, I went on the Cambodia mission trip. And before leaving, I set aside a day to pray and get my heart right and listen to the Lord if he had anything to say about the trip. And the one phrase I came away from that, that day of prayer was, um, that I came away with was, it's time. I began to understand that phrase to mean, it's time to revive my hope and my faith that I will actually get to lead people to Jesus. Because I've honestly struggled with that. By God's grace, he strengthened me to share the gospel with hundreds of people, but very rarely have I seen someone actually give their life to Jesus um, and, and demonstrate the fruit of a new life. So I think I've honestly become a little cynical. I've been discouraged and my faith has waned so much so that I'm often pretty hesitant to even ask someone to respond. I'll share the gospel with them, but, but be like, oh, I assume you don't really want this. So I plant a seed and I'll trust God can save you someday, but I'm just not really gonna have the boldness to, to ask you to respond in the moment. That's how I've often been. And I think that's somewhat true at my Christian club as well. But this Thursday, about a, the Thursday I'm talking about, about a month ago, as I was driving over to Christian club, I felt the Lord again whisper in my heart, it's time. And I had seen God all throughout the Cambodia trip save people. I myself got to lead at least 15 people in professing faith. And the Lord, I think, was saying, like what you got to see in Cambodia, it's time to see here as well or at least it's time to take a risk and go for it. So I shared a story um, at Christian Club. Actually, I think I began by just saying straight up, hey guys, I think for some of you, it's time to respond to the message. I told a story about um, a man in Cambodia who lived way off in the middle of nowhere and he had learned some things about Jesus. He knew God was real. He had seen God answered prayers, but he hadn't yet fully understood the gospel and given over his life to Jesus. So we got to bring that message and with him lead him to respond. And for him that day, it was time. I told that story to my students and said, I think for some of you today, you're in the same boat. You know God is real. You've seen God answer prayers, or at least you believe he does. You've heard some things about Jesus, but you haven't yet fully grasped this message and given over your life to Jesus. And I think for some of you in this room today, it's time. So I'm gonna do something that I've never done at Christian Club, I told them. I'm gonna give you a, sp uh, a space right now if you want to respond. I read Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth 
It's like publicly, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I told them, if you want to give your life to Jesus today, then I want you to come up forward in front of everyone. All your kids or all your friends will see you. And I want you to come and I will lead you in a professing or saying out loud that Jesus is your Lord. And then I waited. There was one girl I'd talked to the day before um, in this discipleship or this, this group on Wednesdays to train up leaders. She was sitting in the front and she came forward. And then there was about three, four or five boys, different parts of the room all just popped up and came forward. And within a matter of a few seconds, half the room stood up and came forward. About 40 to 50 middle schoolers came up front to acknowledge that they wanted to make Jesus or respond to Jesus as Lord. And to be honest, even as I say this moment now, there's a part of my heart that wants to shrink back and say, oh, but maybe they weren't really serious. I bet those, those couple of kids just came because of their friends. And some of that may be true. The parable of the, of the sowers or of the soils says that not everyone who gets excited about Jesus will follow through. But it also says that some will and their lives will produce 30, 60, and 100 fold. So I'm battling my own cynicism and my own doubt in this moment by saying, no, I'm not just gonna assume, oh, I couldn't have, God couldn't have done that. God must not have done that. But instead believe, no, I think actually for some of those kids that I've been praying for, for the school I've been praying for for two years, for some of those kids in that room about a month and a half ago, it was time. So let me reread a couple of verses, ask a couple of questions and pray. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. It's finished. I think we could appropriately summarize that passage with the words, it's finished. And then the implication of the passage is it's time. It's time. It's time for you and me as we wrestle with this passage to say, what does that mean? For some of us, it's a question of what will you do with this moment? It's the only one you've got. Have you responded to Jesus and the gospel? It's not about the things that you or I do, it's about relationship. The the passage doesn't specify that, but it's soaked in language related to that because that's the whole teaching of the New Testament, right? It talks about being called. Called what? Called out? No, called into relationship. It talks about a will and an inheritance. Those are, unless you're crazy, the, the testator doesn't just give stuff away to random people, it's to people in relationship. It ends by saying, this is for those who eagerly wait for his return. Unless you're crazy, you are not eagerly waiting for Christ's return unless you have a relationship because his, his return is, is terrifying for people who are outside of relationship. It's those who actually know him. It's being born again from above that he talks about to Nicodemus. But he also talks about in the end of the Sermon on the Mount that there will be people on that day who say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and do that and do this? And I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. It's about a relationship. This moment is your window of opportunity. You don't have any other. 
Do you have relationship? Life-changing, personal, intimate, transformative relationship. Not religious practice, not moral behavior, but have you accepted Christ? The gospel can be summarized a number of different ways. Let me just give it to you this way. It starts with the truth that there's nothing you can do. It is absolutely the gift of God. It is completely of grace. It is free. You cannot earn it. And to attempt to do so would be to ruin everything. And that's really good news. Because God owes you nothing other than condemnation. You cannot indebt him to you. There's nothing you could do that he would owe you something, but he does owe you and he owes me and everyone else, at least prior to coming to this relationship, condemnation. Because I am sinful and you are sinful. We talk about brokenness, we talk about failings, we talk about frailty, we talk about our humanity, we talk about struggles, all very, very legitimate. But at the center of that mess, there is this core that says it's not just a brokenness, there is something about me that is fundamentally at odds with God. I am sinful and I am a rebel. I wanna rule my own universe and I don't like him telling me what to do. That is cosmic treason and it carries the death penalty. God owes me condemnation, he owes me judgment. That's what comes at death. And God's holy, and he will carry that out. There is not a single sin committed by you, me, or anybody else that will not bear the full weight of God's judgment, and blood will be required. The question is whose? And because God is not just holy, but because he's also loving, he's gracious, he longs for me, he pursues me in love. And he sent his son to be the savior of the world. He willingly sacrificed himself to pay the penalty, to deal with sin, not to shove it off to the side, to put it down, not kick the can down the road or kind of manage it, but to fundamentally resolve the problem so that I can be in Christ's new creation with the righteousness of God as mine. And all of my sin Jesus paid that penalty. That's the gospel. That's the better reality that the, the, the writer of Hebrews has been arguing for. And the way that I access that is by responding, by trusting, by believing. But not just a cognitive belief, because that happens actually pretty easily for many of us. We, of course, I believe this. But it's not just, I, I, I mentally assent to it. It's a surrendered trust. I entrust myself to this. That's actually the danger that he's concerned about. These people, the Hebrews that he's writing to, at least some of them appear not to have actually come to a full-fledged faith and they may walk away from it. It's like, don't walk away, entrust yourself fully. This is the moment you have. And it's the only moment you have. You don't know what's coming next and neither do I. So the question is, what will you do with this moment? Do you have relationship? God loves you enough to send a son to die. That's how much he wants relationship. It's yours to respond. Not just say, oh, that makes sense. But to say, God, I turn away from all that I was trying to do, and I turn towards you. 
help. I believe, I believe Jesus died in my place. I believe it's your grace. I believe you owe me nothing except condemnation, but I believe you're loving. Forgive me because of what he did. Take me and make me yours. What will you do with this moment? And sometimes I think we let other things get in the way. Friend, who was a big part of the church here for a number of years, um, key leader since gone to be with Jesus years ago, was sharing his testimony with Dave Etten and I one time. He'd been a key leader at another church before that. I think he was chairman of their board. And he didn't know Christ as his savior. He found that out one day. It just struck him in the middle of the service. It's like, what do you do? Because everyone thinks you're, you're like the chairman of the board. You're teaching people all this. What do you do? It's easy, in the craziest way, it's easy to be intimidated into missing the opportunity that God's given you because of caring more about what somebody else thinks. He was wise enough not to do that. He accepted Christ. He told everyone. He was baptized. Here's the chairman of our board who just became a Christian and now he's being baptized. That's not normal procedure, but it, he wasn't gonna let that stop him, right? What will you do with this moment? Will you let something stop you? The other question, if you have responded and experienced the grace of God, what will you do with this message? It's urgent. Now, in saying that, I want to remind us, it starts by talking about this is, this is for those who are called, and we won't unpack all that, but we need to remember God is the one who initiates, God is doing things, and it's, I don't have to run out of here with my hair on fire, fearful that everyone in the world is going to die and be separated from God eternally if I don't go talk to them right now. That's not the call of Scripture. Right? God is not that weak and he's not that foolish to entrust that to me. But he has entrusted the plan to us. And he said, you're a steward of that. And you have the opportunity. And I put you in a family and I put you in a neighborhood and I put you in a job and I put you in these relationships. And you're the one who has this message. There is no other message like it. Nothing will change the world but this. Nothing will change them but this. What will you do with that? This week I got a, a, um, an update from one of our ministry partners around the world. Uh, I've edited some things because it's important not to get too specific. They're in North Africa in a Muslim country, but I'll read you a bit of this edited text as something to ponder. I want to go to heaven, she mumbled through tears, lying sideways on the ground on a pile of blankets. The room was full of family and felt dark and stuffy and my friend and I were squeezed among them. Though we felt very much like the outsiders, my friend spoke out across the room about how much the father loves her and asked if we could pray for her in the name of the son where all authority is. They were okay with that. We laid our hands on her and prayed and then continued silently afterwards as she continued to groan in pain. It was heavy, despair was palpable, but what broke our hearts the most was the response of her family when she had said that she wanted to go to heaven, all at once it seemed that every voice filled the air with all the reasons why she would indeed go to heaven as they recounted the good things she had done in her life. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. I can stack up the good as much as I want to. The problem is not just that I haven't done enough good. There's something much deeper. Pushing back the darkness, that's what it felt like to speak the name of the sun in that crowded room that night. I'll be honest, most days, it's not something that comes naturally to step out the door with a friend and look for those who we can pray and share with. Yet, 
When we do this, we remember the vastness of the lost and how fleeting are our days. The more we repeat the good news to others, the more we hear it and rejoice in it again ourselves. The more we pray for others, the more we believe that he actually does have the power to do anything like change hearts. Some conversations have been encouraging and sweet. Some have been downright awkward and discouraging. Some just clear rejection. We'd extend the challenge to you this week as well. Wherever you are to grab a friend, step out your door or your comfort zone and open your mouth. I'll be the first to say, this is not easy, but the good news really is incredible, life-saving news. And oh, how his power is made perfect in our many weaknesses. You know, it's playoff time and uh, the Lakers are doing really well. And um, it's an interesting dynamic in my neighborhood anyway. I don't have to watch the game to know how it turned out. If the Lakers lose, it is eerily quiet. But if the Lakers win, or the Dodgers or the Rams fill in the team, it's just boisterous and loud. You hear cheering and yelling and yeah, and you hear the slapping of high fives and all that. And this is from inside the house. They can't help themselves. They can't contain themselves. The team just won. Jesus one. Where's the noise? Where's the noise? I have an opportunity. We all have an opportunity. We're going to sing the gospel. I'm going to ask the ushers to come. We'll take our offering and I'll pray. And we're going to sing the gospel. It's beautiful. But I would encourage us as we sing the gospel to ask these questions. Have I embraced it? Is this a personal, owned relationship it's true of me, and if not, what will I do with this moment? And for others of us, I've embraced it. I'm singing it, proclaiming it. What's it gonna look like this week when I go out? How will I proclaim it out there? Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy and for the beauty of the gospel. I just pray that you would work in this moment in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.